So Professor Roger Kneebone has worked as a surgeon and a general practitioner and now directs the Imperial College Centre for Engagement and Simulation Science, which aims to advance human health through simulation and through collaborating with clinicians, scientists, patients, the publics and experts outside of medicine. Prof Kneebone. Thank you, Sam. Um, well, in the next 15 minutes, I'm going to explore the clinical relationship as the expression of care by one person for another. And at its heart is putting somebody else's needs and wishes in front of your own. Much of this is expressed through the wordless language of touch, and it's touch that I'm going to talk about in the next little while. We often think of touch as a currency for expressing love of many kinds, parental love, erotic love, the love of precious and beautiful things. And in one sense, clinical care too can be an expression of love. And care, clinical care, is expressed through touch. So I'm going to frame touch as one of medicine's many languages, alongside its scientific language, its descriptive language, numerical, all kinds of others. But... But the language of touch, I think, is it's often overlooked and we tend to undervalue its power. But the relationship of care is mediated through proximity and touch, through people being close to one another and touching one another. And I guess, as we all know, care can, um, touch can, it can convey kindness and competence and reassurance, or the opposite, it can convey indifference or roughness or callousness, or not really caring. So the everyday language of touch is both rich and subtle, and it's a language, I think, that's so much part of us all that we, we hardly even notice it, and it's something that we absorb from our earliest days. And a bit like learning a spoken language, it's something that we absorb when we're very young without even realising we're doing it. It happens unawares. Um, but clinical touch is a different language. Clinical touch is something that we have to learn as an adult. And, and like learning a spoken language later on in life, when you're in your 20s or 30s, it's a very different thing from just absorbing it unconsciously from the people all around you. And I think people often grapple with learning the language of clinical touch. I certainly did. Um, and I think there are, there are registers of touch that are helpful to think about. So the, the Canadian phenomenologist Max van Manen talks about two types of touch. He talks about Gnostic touch, the touch you use to make a diagnosis, that one-way means of gathering information. And alongside that, he talks about pathic touch, two-way touch that conveys care. And I want to spend a little time exploring those, those two ways of, of thinking about touch. So the Gnostic touch is, is what you learn at medical school or nursing school or, or wherever it is. And it, it starts with clinical examination. So I, when I went to medical school, it was, a, it was a fairly traditional school. I spent the first three years learning anatomy and biochemistry and all those things and never seeing a patient. And then I went on to the wards. And, and we, were, we were all taught a mantra for how you examine a patient clinically. Not a particular patient, but how you do a clinical examination. Inspection, palpation, percussion, 
auscultation. Inspection, you don't touch, you stand and you look ostentatiously, keeping your hands to yourself. Then palpation is when you touch somebody, it might be their tummy or their elbow or something. Percussion, you tap them. Auscultation, you might put your stethoscope on and listen. And those last three are all about touch. So that was clinical examination. And then there were the procedures. So um, when I was a, a started off in hospitals, uh, one Saturday I was sent off to do the bloods. Didn't know what to expect. Um, and this was, a, this, this was a ward of people who had just come into hospital and they were going to have operations the next week and they all needed to have blood taken from them. Nobody wanted to do that. I was the most junior, so it fell to me. Um, so there I was. There was a very harassed houseman in a white coat who said, ever done this before? I said, no. He said, I'll show you once. Showed me. Thrust a whole stack of syringes and needles and little tiny tubes into my hand and pushed off. So I had to go around the ward taking blood from person after person after person. And gradually, gradually I got the hang of it. And I ended up doing it a lot. I didn't really like doing it. It seemed to me repetitive and, and I couldn't really see why I had to do it. But somebody had to and that was me. And then as time went on, it turned into doing other procedures. I was putting up drips, intravenous infusions in people, often get, being woken up in the middle of the night to recite them or to unblock people's urinary catheters or to suture episiotomies, all kinds of things that, that medical people would probably be familiar with. And they involved doing painful things to strangers very often. And as I say, with all of this, it seemed like boring, repetitive work of no apparent value. But although it was certainly repetitive and it was sometimes boring, at least to me, it certainly was not of no value because actually, by doing all that stuff, I wasn't only taking blood and unblocking catheters, I was learning how to approach strangers, how to enter and leave their space. And although it was something I didn't realise at the time, I was, I was learning how to convey care through doing. And I was learning that without being aware of it. And then within that Gnostic touch, that touch for gathering information, lying curled up but often, often unnoticed, I think is the pathic touch. It's that, it's that condensed, rich, abbreviated, distilled, boiled down and very subtle language where a momentary touch on the shoulder or a press or a tiny, tiny touch can be very eloquent and yet, yet there's lots of, lots of scope for, for misunderstanding, I think. Patients are, are often very sensitive in reading that language of touch, but they may not always be reading what it is that clinicians want them to understand. It's much more complex than we think. So as medical students and, and clinicians, we start by learning procedures and techniques in the abstract. So we learned, I learned how to examine the knee or the abdomen. Without it being attached to anybody in particular, it was sort of disembodied, almost abstract. But of course these techniques, they only make sense in the context of individual people. And so there's something important about how we bridge the gap between the Gnostic and the Pathic, how we, how we um, continue to, to internalise that language of touch so that we can use it for communicating as well as for gathering information. And the, the, the phenomenologist, Van Manen, whom I mentioned just, just now, says something very interesting here. He, he says in one of his books, of course, a Gnostic, Pathic 
ambiguity can arise in many professional and social situations. For example, the physiotherapist may manipulate or massage the patient's body with Gnostic intent, while the patient would say that the, that the treatment has the quality of a pathic experience. Many medical procedures that are primarily technical may give the patient a pathic trust in the physician, especially if the quality of the relation between patient and doctor is personal. So what then makes pathic practice distinct, he asks? The difference, he says, is this. Pathic thought turns itself immediately and directly to the person himself or herself. A pathic relation is always specific and unique. Even a relatively brief encounter between a patient and a healthcare provider can have this personal quality. A personal relation is something you can only have with a specific other. And the pathic orientation meets this concrete person in the heart of his or her existence without trying to reduce the patient to a diagnostic picture, a certain type of case, a preconceived category, a psychological type, a set of factors on a scale or a theoretical classification. In other words, there's something deeply personal or intersubjective to the pathic relation. And that's also the reason that the pathic personal relation is easily confused with the private one. So I'll give you an example. I, was, uh, I used to ride a, a, a motor scooter in London. And um, one hot summer's evening, a short time ago, I was, I was riding home with my visor up. And all of a sudden, su su sudden something hit me in the face. I could feel um, liquid trickling down my face. I couldn't see very well with one eye. And I was, I was terrified. I didn't know what it was, whether it was something toxic or corrosive or whatever. So I went straight to the eye hospital. And when I got there, I saw... Um, after a bit of a wait, I saw two doctors. The first one was a, 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 a junior ophthalm, ophthalmology trainee, and, and he examined me very efficiently, but in a particular way. He, he came up straight in front of me, shone a bright light in my eye, turned my upper eyelid inside out, put me on a slit lamp and, and did all sorts of things, muttered and then went away and said I'd need to see the, the consultant. And then about half an hour later... I saw the consultant who did almost exactly the same things. She shone a bright light in my eye, she averted my upper eyelid, she used a slit lamp to see what was going on, but the experience was totally different because she made me feel immediately at home. She approached me in a way so that I hardly even noticed her coming right up in front of me at a time when I was very frightened. And I only noticed that, I think, because of the contrast, because I'd seen that other doctor, experienced that other doctor doing things very differently. And the, the consultant had that effortless ease that comes from long practice. So I think there's something very interesting about, about personal space and how you become confident in entering and leaving other people's personal space with, with grace and respect. It's like coming into somebody's house and spending time as their guest. You don't just come barging in and, and take over. You have to understand what you need to do. And there are, there are lots of people who are expert at engaging with people in their personal space. Some of them are clinicians, of course, doctors, nurses, opticians, physiotherapists. Um, but others are, are not medical at all. So I've been working with a number of other people, hairstylists, for instance, close-up magicians, bespoke tailors, all kinds of people who, who become very adept at, at entering and inhabiting and leaving gracefully other people's personal space. So all this is, is not about factual knowledge, it's about 
It's about sensitivity. It's about becoming aware of another person, reading signals, noticing and responding how, how they react to you, and, of course, adjusting how you react to them appropriately. Um, and I've noticed this a lot over the last year or so because I've been quite ill with, with pneumonia. It's getting better now, but it, it, was, it made me very ill for, for quite a while. And I don't remember um, very much about what happened medically with, with the many doctors I saw because I, I wasn't really taking that in. But what I do remember very powerfully is the pathic impact of being examined, the reassurance of that physical contact, however brief, with the clinicians I saw. But I think touch is changing um, for various reasons. The first one is that, that the reason I was taught to do all those physical examinations was that that's how most clinical, clinical information was gathered. You'd examine somebody, you'd, you'd, you'd tell somebody else what you thought was going on, and then treatment would follow. But now, of course, it, things don't work like that. Imaging, scans, new technology mean that you can get far more information, far more precise far more detailed by using technology than you can through physical examination. And that has an impact, I think, on how we see the role of touch within the clinical consultation. The second thing that's happening, I think, is that we can no longer assume that clinicians will become confident in learning to touch and be touched by people through taking these apparently, through doing these apparently unrelated things like taking blood and putting up drips and putting in catheters and things, because a lot of those tasks are now delegated to other professionals like phlebotomists and other people. And in some ways that makes a lot of sense, but in other ways, I think we may well be losing that fluency, that comfort, that ability to engage with people and do uncomfortable, sometimes painful things to them when they're frightened and we ourselves may not be confident by doing it again and again and again. And so if physical touch is being replaced by image, by the visual, the cognitive, there is a danger that the that diagnosis and care, that the Gnostic and the pathic aspects of practice might drift apart. And then, of course, consultations themselves are changing. Um, when I was a, a surgeon, first of all, then a GP, consultations were, were, were pretty much always face-to-face, -face, but now we have phone consultations, online consultations, video consultations, all sorts of ways of interacting with people where touch is being scooped out and where touch can be seen as, as subsidiary, not central, and where, again, the pathic may be a casualty of changes to the Gnostic. And then, of course, there are all the, the social and cultural changes and, and the taboos and the anxieties around touch in general, which mean that, that ways we used to interact with one another and take for granted, we think differently about now. Touching children, touching adults of the same sex, different sex, people from different cultural backgrounds, different expectations, all sorts of things that, that, that just happened look different now. And so I think there is a, a danger of medicine becoming abstracted and depersonalised and divorced from direct contact. And I think that that's a real issue because we need fluency in the language of touch because touch is the currency of care. Yet we cannot take that fluency for granted. It has to be learnt, it has to be practised and it has to be kept current. 
But because that touch is so central to the work that we do as clinicians and the care that we experience as patients, that fluency in the language of touch is what we mustn't allow ourselves to lose. Thank you. <laughs>